I've got a question for you to think about. What do you reckon is the greatest blessing that Christians are given by God? What's the greatest blessing that the creator of all, the ruler of all, has given to people like you and me? Is it forgiveness, that knowing that our consciences, the things that bug us, have all been forgiven, they're cleansed, we're clean before God? Is it prayer, that we could speak to the creator of the universe and have him listen to us? Is it church, that God gathers us as his people and we have the blessing of that fellowship and encouragement from others? Is it the hope of resurrection? If you've been reading Galatians with us so far, been here the last couple of weeks, then you've probably almost persuaded that the greatest blessing God offers us and gives us in Jesus is justification. You might remember back in chapter 2, verse 15, Paul says, We who are Jews by birth, not sinful Gentiles, know that a person is not justified by works of the law, by what we do, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith. He talks about it as if it's foundational, it's the greatest thing. It came at great cost. Jesus became a curse. He took on the curse of the law for us so that our curse could be done away with. It makes a huge difference. Sinful, unholy people like you and me are now completely acceptable to God. Justification is that total permanent forgiveness where the end time verdict that shouldn't be given till the end of the world, the end of my life, is given here and now where God says, Tim... You're right with me. That is hugely significant. And I think in the Bible, it is the foundational, the fundamental blessing of the gospel. But I want to suggest there's actually one more wonderful, more amazing than that. Uh, J.I. Packer wrote a classic book called Knowing God a couple of hundred years ago, well, a couple of decades ago. It's a terrific book if you ever get hold of it. Really excellent. And in that book, he suggests that the highest privilege the gospel offers you and me is the privilege of adoption. God taking us into his family, adopting us as his children. Now, he's not saying it's more significant than justification. It's just so much more than justification. It's not independent of justification. It just takes us so much further. I guess it's like the difference between flying economy class and first class. You're flying in both, aren't you? You still get there in both, but it's a vastly different experience. Or the difference between just getting a degree or getting first class honours. And today's section of Galatians, this idea of adoption is central to what Paul is talking about. You pick it up in chapter 3, verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children, you are all literally sons of God through faith. Or in chapter 4, verse 7, so you're no longer a slave, but God's child, God's son. And since you are a son, you're an heir. Now, I need to clear up a little bit of language stuff, I think. Because I think for some of us, the language of son just rubs the wrong way a little bit. Because Paul is talking to both men and women, girls and guys. He's saying, you're sons of God. But please, if, before you get offended at Paul's language and say, no, I'm not a son, I'm a daughter, I want you to listen to what he's actually saying. Because he's writing in a world and a culture where sons were much more important than daughters. It was the sons who took the family name. They inherited the property. We've actually got lots of literature from the first century that give us insight into this. For example, there was a letter dug up written in, the, in 1 BC. I wasn't there then, but 1 BC, you can work out when that was. It was written by a husband to his pregnant wife. They, at this stage, they were living on opposite parts of the Roman Empire. And part of his letter says this. If it's a boy, let it live. If it's a girl, expose it. 
Now, exposing it doesn't mean sort of take a bit of cloth off. Expose it means to put it outside in the freezing cold or the burning sun and leave it to die. It was quite common in that world to do that to daughters. Daughters were seen as an encumbrance, not a blessing. Now, what does Paul do? He says he's not ignoring your gender. He's elevating your value. He says girls are sons in the family of God as well as blokes. So, back to the passage. The the central bit of this passage is chapter 4, 1 to 7, where Paul talks about the experience of becoming a Christian is from slavery to freedom. The experience of trusting Jesus as Lord and Saviour moves you from being slaves to being free. Now, for some of you, that's a fairly recent experience in some ways. I don't mean becoming a Christian, although that might be true, but the experience of moving from slavery to freedom Because you've just moved from high school to university, haven't you? And it's quite different. People keep saying to me, it just feels so free. I don't have to get to school at uh, 8.45. I don't have to be there till 3.30. I don't have to go to every class on on the timetable. I I come and I go as I please. I go to lectures as I want to, or I catch up online, or I don't. I'm quite free. Now, there's limits to your freedom here, and there are consequences for using it in certain ways, but it's sort of true, isn't it? You have gone from slavery to freedom. But Paul's talking about something much more significant. He's using the the ancient world idea of a slave. People were in slavery in the Roman Empire for many reasons, sometimes debt, sometimes war. Historians say that at least 10% of the population would have been slaves. In Italy, it was more like 30 to 40% were slaves. Some slaves were treated really well. But whether you were treated well or badly, all wanted freedom. And Paul starts in this section talking to Jewish Christians first. In verse 4, sorry, chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, he uses we. So verse 3, also when we were underage, we were in slavery. But when this time had come, uh, we might receive adoption as sons. In verse 6, he changes to you because you are sons. God sent his spirit. The we here are almost certainly Jewish Christians. The you are Gentile Christians. I hope that makes sense for you. And he says, Jewish Christians, our experience of becoming a Christian was slavery to freedom, from underage to adults. Verse four, uh, sorry, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, he uses this little illustration. He says, what I'm saying is that as long as an heir is underage, while they're a minor, when they're not an adult yet, he's no different to a slave, even though he sort of theoretically owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So we too... When we're underage, we're in slavery. He imagines a wealthy family. I like royalty, like the royal family. I don't know if you're interested in the royal family, but almost everybody in Australia says they're not interested, but we all read the stuff, don't we? So think of William and Kate, and they're now two little children, Prince George and, and Princess Charlotte. Now, Prince George might be the third in line to the throne, He may be heir of billions of dollars and palaces and castles and carriages, but at the moment, he's under tutors and nannies. And Paul says basically he's no different to a slave because other people are regulating his life till he comes of age, till he becomes an adult. And so Paul says, in the same way, we Jews were under the guardianship of the law. That was like to to be a Jew, we were under the law. He said that back in chapter 3, verse 24. The law was our guardian until Christ came. And again, in in chapter 4, verse 3, when we're underage, we're in slavery. uh, Sorry, uh, verse 2. The heir is subject to guardians and trustees, and that's what we were like. 
the word he uses is the word we get pedagogy from. Anyone know what pedagogy is? Pedagogy, I don't know how to say it properly, because I'm not a teacher. It means teaching, just a fancy word for teaching. Although in the ancient world, it was more significant than a teacher. That is, in most well-to-do families, the children, especially the sons in the family, were put under the care of a personal tutor. The father entrusted the child to that tutor. And the tutor had all the authority of the father. They had charge of the child to discipline them, to order their lives. Why? Because children are silly, aren't they? They're immature. They're undisciplined. They need external rule. Now, everyone's looking forward to the time when they come of age, when the guardian is no longer needed to keep them in check, when the child is free to chart their own course, when they're adult, trusted to take responsibility. But until then, they're under a guardian. And Paul says that's what the law of the Old Testament is like. It's that guardian, this external order imposed on an immature child. And he even talks in verse 3, that law is like the elementaries of life. He uses a, a technical term, which is about the, the ABCs, the do re mis, the one, two, threes, the rudimentary education of children. It's not advanced, which is a bit of an irony because that's what other people are saying. It's the, the rudiments. Uh, do you remember when you learnt your times tables? Or did you just use a calculator? Remember learning your times tables? Two times two, three times two, four times two. To start with, it's just the law, isn't it? it it's slavery, learning those, rote learning them over and over again. But finally you get to maturity and you just know them. You don't have to be taught them. You don't have to learn them. You're not under the restrictions of a law. You can just do it or get your calculator out and do it. And Paul says that's what the law was like. It regulated our lives. And that means we're always sort of on edge. Am I breaking it now? Am I doing something? Am I touching something, eating something that makes me unclean? What's the calendar up to today? Am I supposed to be doing something different? If you don't think that is slavery, try it for a little while. Read through some of the Old Testament. Read through Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers and try and keep the law. I reckon you couldn't keep it. You just get so jack of it. It regulates every aspect of your life, day in, day out, minute by minute. But Paul says that had a use-by date. It's only for a time, just like the tutor has a use-by date. Until the time set by the father, they're needed. But after that, you do away with them. And so the law had a use-by date set by God. Which leads us straight into verse 4. When the set time had fully come, the the time God had set, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. What did God do? He sent his son. That assumes he was already his son. He was pre-existent. The son of God, God the son. But he was born of a woman. He was just like us. He became real flesh. But born of a woman also echoes Genesis 3. Remember Genesis 3? Adam and Eve sin against God. The serpent is there in the middle of the whole thing, confusing. And, and God says to the serpent, the seed of the woman will crush your head. Someone born of a woman will crush you. And here's a man, born of a woman, born under law. He lived life fully obedient to the law God gave. He didn't free us from the law by ripping it up, by smashing it to pieces, but by keeping it, by fulfilling it. And his purpose was to redeem those under the law. Redeem in that culture was a very 
a meaningful word. Us, it probably just means something religious. But in a world where there were many, many slaves, redemption had to do with buying the freedom of slaves. You can imagine, maybe your dad gets into debt. He's bankrupt. He has to sell himself into slavery. There he is, owned by another family, down the street from you. He's a slave. What do you want to do? Well, what you'd long to do, if you could ever possibly pull it off, was put together enough money to redeem him, to buy his freedom, to have him back as your dad, back part of your family. Well, that's the image Paul uses. Buying out of slavery. How does he do it? He took the curse of the law, so we're freed from the curse of the law. That's what we saw last week. And he keeps the law, so we don't need to. We're liberated from the law as our condemner by being justified. We're liberated from law as our guardian by giving us the freedom of sons of God. You notice in verse 5, what he's saying is that the purpose of Jesus redeeming us is that we might receive adoption to sonship. Not just liberty, not just brought back into freedom, but adoption. That is to become an adult son in the family of God himself. Able to take our place in his family, free to be part of it, free to contribute and take responsibility. But adoption here is seen as a gift from God. It's not natural. There are natural children, biological children, but that's not what we are. We're adopted into the family of God. Well, that's Jews. What about Gentiles? Well, that's what he starts to speak about in verse 6. You are his sons as well. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but God's children. Since the child, God has made you an heir. He calls them sons. They too have been liberated from slavery. Verse 8, he talks about the sort of slavery it was. Formerly, you did not know God. You were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. That's what he's saying there. He's saying that other religions, idolatry, whether that's Hinduism or Buddhism or animism or Islam, are not worshipping and, re- and relating to the true God. They're not real gods. They're not the creator of the universe. Secondly, he's saying that those religions are slavery. And they are, I think. I remember a girl becoming a Christian at uni who came from a Buddhist background, a sort of folk religion Buddhist background, and she invited us into her home. And up on the wall in the lounge room of her home was a a little shrine. Uh, And on the shrine were some oranges and apples and things. And I asked about it and she said, well, every time our family is at a point where where we're worried about what's going to happen, maybe we're we're flying back home to Malaysia, maybe there's an exam coming up, uh, maybe there's a a business uh, deal that my dad's doing, we will always offer something to, to the spirits, to the gods. And I said, why do you do that? And she said, of course, we're petrified that it might go wrong. We're hoping against hope that those spirits, those powers might help us. Now, what do you call that? That's slavery, isn't it? Slavery to fear. Slavery to these unpredictable powers that you hope you can win on side by paying them lots of money or fruit or whatever it might be. It's slavery. Now, I know it's not very politically correct to say other religions don't worship the true God and they're slavery. Cultural studies at UWA will probably say to us, come on, they're all happy. To go and evangelise them, to share the gospel with them is cultural imperialism. Maybe. But if, if in the house next door to you, you discovered that people were being kept as slaves by fear, I hope you'd exercise a little bit of cultural imperialism. 
But he says, now you are sons adopted into God's family. And in verse 7, he changes from yous, all of you as, as a group, to the individual. You and you and you and you. You've become sons of God by adoption. And adoption has this sense of a legal proceeding, proceedings having happened. Now, the paperwork's been filled out. You've been adopted into the family of God. He's changed your name to his name. Legally, you're part of the family. Legally, you're just as much part of the family as the biological children. You have just as much right in the inheritance and everything else in the family. That's what it means to be adopted. Can you see the enormity of what Paul is saying? He's saying to you Gentiles, you were slaves to other gods, to demons, to your own passions. But Jesus has liberated you at enormous cost. He paid his own life to set you free. That is fantastic. That is stunning. But this goes further. He then adopted you into his family. That is unbelievable, I think. Into God's own family, into the royal family. It's interesting. The son, who would have inherited everything from the father, who shared everything, was happy for us to be adopted in as well, even though that meant sharing the inheritance. Now, I suspect that most of us don't actually believe this. In our first year group uh, the other day, we were just introducing ourselves, getting to know each other a little bit by asking, tell us about your family. Well, imagine, your respo- imagine if your response is this. Well, actually, let me tell you about my dad. Um, he uh, um, runs a multinational company. And I say, oh, how did he get to run it? Uh, was he, has he been doing it very long? Well, he's been doing it for almost for ages. Of course, he created it from nothing. How big is this multinational company? Well, it's much bigger than Apple, much bigger than Coca-Cola. Like, like how big? The whole universe? Uh, that's your dad? Yeah, that's my dad. Uh, we normally don't do that, do we? Because we only think in terms of our biological family. And our biological families are terrific, but this is saying something has happened to us that is much more than that. But one of the troubles with adoption is that we often don't feel like it's really true. So there might be a piece of paper somewhere locked away in the government archive saying we've been adopted, but it doesn't mean I feel like I'm part of the family. I remember chatting to a friend of mine. He was about 16 at the time. And uh, we'd been meeting up for a while. He'd been going through some really difficult times. Um, and he said to me, Tim, there's, there's probably something that might explain why, I, why life is so tough for me, why I behave so badly. He said, I was adopted as a baby. I said, yeah, that's news for me. I didn't know that. I said, tell me more. He said, well, my parents felt like they thought they couldn't have children, so they adopted me when I was about, uh, I think it was about eight months old. Um, And then after they adopted me, they've had two children that are their own biological children. And I always feel inferior to them. I feel like they really belong in the family and I don't belong in the family. And he said, I I just feel completely insecure. I I don't know whether I'll stay part of the family. I feel like Dad will probably kick me out any minute. If I just step across the line too far, he'll disown me. That's the trouble. Some of you may be adopted. I, I don't know. I don't know whether you have that experience. But you notice what Paul says here. God doesn't just legally adopt us. He does something so we feel adopted. Verse 6, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but God's child. Since you're a child, 
God has made you an heir. Did you see what he's saying? He's saying God sends his own spirit, the spirit of his son, into our hearts, into the core of our being, to enable us to feel like sons of God, part of God's family. What's the evidence of that? Well, he says it's, he calls out to God, Abba, Father. We call God by the word that only a child can use, to their father. Imagine you're following Prince William around. Maybe you're one of the paparazzi who's always there taking photos. What, what do you call him? Well, I presume you, you sort of call him your majesty or prince or something like that. And even if you're the prime minister, you'd still call him your majesty or the doorman at the door as you go in. But what does Prince George say? He just walks in and says, Daddy, doesn't he? He can do it. Nobody else can do it. He doesn't have to be trained to do it. He just does it naturally. Because he has the spirit of his father in him. And Paul's saying that's what we have. We intuitively know that we don't need to keep calling God the holy, almighty, distant God of eternity. He is that, but he's our father. And father speaks of closeness and confidence, of knowing that we're loved, knowing that there's affection for us. And Paul says it's the spirit of the son that helps us to do that. It's the spirit of Jesus himself who is the son, helps us be like the son, to know and relate to God as father, just like Jesus did. But I don't know if you read through the Gospels, the accounts of Jesus, one of the things that's striking is the way that he relates to God, his father. He seems so comfortable and close to the father. It's just who he is. He's the son. And this is saying we have that same spirit. We too relate to God the father, just like Jesus The Spirit helps us relate to God as Father, and the Spirit of the Son helps us become like the Son in character. Do you see now why Packer might suggest that adoption is the greatest privilege, the greatest blessing that is given us in the Gospel of Jesus? If you're not yet a Christian, can I encourage you to understand this and respond to it? To become a Christian is not simply to move from one form of slavery to another form of slavery. It's to move from slavery to the freedom of being a child of God. I'll just think through a couple of the implications that Paul draws there. Positively, he talks about equality. So in chapter 3, verses 26 to 29, he says, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children, sons of God through faith. For all of you who are baptised into Christ, who clothe yourself with Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Do, Do you get it? All of you. You are all adopted children of the living God. You all know God as your father. You're all brothers of the Lord Jesus Christ, the son. And that's a profound equality. The Pope has no more access to God than the paper seller. Man has no more access to God than a woman. A child has no less access than an executive. You remember Peter, back in chapter 2, Paul had taken him to task because he acted as if there was inequality, as if to be a Jewish Christian made you better than a Gentile Christian because you kept the law. And Paul says that's out of line with the gospel because the gospel says both are adopted into the family of God. I hope for you that's a really heartwarming thing. Because to be equal with each other, to have a genuine equality between us, to be able to recognise that you are a son of God just like I am. 
None of us are better. None of us are, are in a better position than others. It's a terrific thing. But it keeps being undermined by our own pride and ego and sinfulness. We want to create spiritual hierarchies of saints or prophets or the prosperous. The French Revolution cried out, liberty, equality, fraternity. Inspiring ideal, if you know anything of the French. It shed lots of blood as well, which was a problem. But the reality of that, which they aspire to, is actually given to us in Jesus. Liberty, equality, through fraternity, through brotherhood. That's the positive side, but there's a negative side as well. Pick it up in verse 9. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. So he's giving them a warning about what these agitators in Galatia are saying. Remember, they're coming along and saying, yes, 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 you're justified by Jesus. Yes, what he did uh, saves you. What he did puts you right with God. Yes, yes, but that's only the start. You also need to keep the law. You must keep the law. You must be circumcised and take on the diets and festivals of Judaism. They're given by God. They're the law of God. And so, in a sense, they're saying, in order to make progress... In order to have greater intimacy with God, you must keep the law. What does Paul say? That is not progress, that's regress. That's to go back into slavery. It's sort of like you, now you're at uni going back to high school again. Putting your school uniform on, turning up at uni every day at quarter to nine, even though you don't have a lecture, till three o'clock in the afternoon. He says it's becoming slaves to those elementaries again. Like going back to pagan idolatry. It's just slavery. See, if you know God, or rather, if you're known by God as his own child, his own son, you can't have any greater intimacy with God than that. To say there's another intimacy, a greater, a higher intimacy, that's just a con. And it's a crock. It just makes you a slave again. In verse 10, he talks about having to watch the calendar all the, all the time. Is this a Sabbath day today? Is there a festival on next week? Do I have to change everything around? Is there a new moon? Is it time to go up to Jerusalem? Is it the sabbatical year? I've just got to keep watching my calendar day in, day out. That's the slavery Jesus has redeemed you from. And today, there are people insisting that we keep the Old Testament laws of Sabbaths and circumcision and everything else. It's the promise of progress and Paul says it's a crock. It's a regress, one bit. Well, you've got some time. Are there questions you want to ask, comments you want to make? What's that raised for you? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Tim. Yeah. What do you do if you don't feel that sort of a, that sunship? You know, like you're, you're supposed to feel it in some sense, but one's about that, that sort of spirit that isn't there. Um, thanks, Sam. The question is, what if you don't feel that sonship, if the spirit doesn't seem to have done that sort of work? Um, it may be because he hasn't. So it's worth asking yourself the question. Um, uh, am I still thinking of God? Do I still, as some, someone distant, someone I need to somehow do things in order to be accepted by? Because you see, Paul thinks that justification and adoption are inextricably linked. One is more than the other, But if you've got one, you've got to have the other. Um, So it's worth asking ourselves the question and thinking through, how do I actually relate to God? 
Am I confident that Jesus has justified me? Or am I still trying to sort of get there by anything that I do on top of what Jesus has done? Because that will destroy that sense of confidence, I think, in itself. Um, The other thing to do, I think, is to ask God by his spirit to bring that confidence to you and start to live that out. If you know you have trusted in Jesus, that's, that's your, your confidence before God, what Jesus has done, not what you do, then, well, actually start to act like a child and the work of the Spirit will reinforce that and help that to grow, I think. But one of the, one of the things I think is often true, in fact, almost always true, is that when somebody, especially someone who has come from a, a non-Christian background, when they become a Christian, they almost instinctively, naturally, just start to pray to God in a way they never did before. I've just seen it day in and day out. It's a little bit more complex, I think, for those who might have grown up in a Christian family. We've always been taught to pray, and it feels no different. Um, so we, yeah, it's worth stopping and thinking about our own experience, true, um, and trying to work out what that might mean about our confidence in Jesus. So the question I think is, um, shouldn't I live by the Ten Commandments? Uh, Is it really true that the law has passed its use-by date? Um, I think I'd want to say to them first, that's pretty clearly what Paul's saying, isn't it? It was a tutor, a guardian, till Jesus came. Um, So I'd I'd want to go there. Um, Now, we need to be a little bit careful of what we do. Um, For example, the, the laws of God aren't completely arbitrary. They do reflect something of the goodness of God and the sort of goodness that he expects uh, us as his people uh, to live by. But the way we live by it, I think, as we'll see next week when we look at chapter 5 and 6, sorry, the next couple of weeks, is not by rule-keeping. Now, there's a new dynamic at work brought about by the Spirit of God. So come back in in the next few weeks as we explore this more. Because one of the things that the agitators in Galatia are almost certainly saying is, listen, you can't do away with law, because if you do away with law, you'll just sin, won't you? You say, your sons, your adults, you ought to be able to take responsibility, but we're not that good at it, are we? If I don't have the law to stop me sinning, I'm just going to blow it time and time again, aren't I? I still need the guardian. And Paul wants to say to us, I think, no, if you've got the Spirit of God, you don't need the law as the guardian. It may be something you still go and refer to. So I remember one friend of mine said, it's a bit like the emeritus professor. Have any of you met any of those? The emeritus professors at university are the ones who've retired but actually have got a lot of wisdom. Now, you're not under them. They don't examine you or anything like that, but you might go to them for advice occasionally. And the law is a little bit like that, I think. Go to it for some advice. need to be careful about the advice. Think of it through the lens of Jesus. But we're not under the law. It's not the way we regulate and live our lives. No, we've been set free from the law. So more of that in the coming weeks. Okay, let's stop there. Um, uh, Tessa, should I pray or will somebody else do that? Yeah, that'd be great. Okay, let's pray.
Our Father, thank you that we can call you Father, because you've made us your sons. Thank you for that incredible graciousness and love, that you would take rebels and not just forgive us, but adopt us into your family. Please write that reality in our hearts by your spirit, that we might with confidence, with freedom, relate to you as our Father, glory in you as our Father. And please protect us from regressing back into law. For Jesus' sake. Amen.